Death by DVD's Wild Wild West. I'm Linnea, and I like Death by DVD. It's a statement. The shooting. Well, well, well. It seems like it's that time again. Time to get wild. Time to go west. This is Death by DVD's Wild Wild West. And this episode begins with an issue. Oh no, an issue. Ah. That's right, there's a problem. I had this movie in mind and I says to myself, I says, this is great. This would be great for the show. I'm passionate about this. Not just the movie, but most of the people involved I like. The producers are great. Roger Corman put the movie out. Roger Corman, come on. What's there not to love about Roger Corman? It's something I feel I could passionately talk about. But then I started thinking about it. And that's obviously where all the trouble began. I started thinking, this is a brilliant movie. This is a beautiful movie. This is even an art movie. All the while being a Western. But it's a specific type of movie that I I don't really have a name for. I don't have a genre for. But it's the type of movie that you can see more than once. And the effect isn't completely lost. But the very first time you see it, there are elements to this movie that once revealed to you dramatically changed the viewing experience. And I realize that some people like to listen to this show to find new movies to watch. They want to hear about the movies before they dive into it. And I'm sure if you're a longtime listener of this program, you're aware that there are a great deal of spoilers. We usually talk about the entirety of the movie. There are many episodes where within the first two or three minutes, we've said what happens at the end because the whole point is talking about that. Well, this is kind of one of those movies that for me to discuss it, I'm going to end up spoiling it. And Even if it's spoiled, it's still a terrific movie, don't get me wrong, it's a terrific experience. And you may have seen this before, I've not said what it is, but I'm pretty sure it'll just be in the title of the show, so you'll know already. But to give you a reference of what I'm talking about, I'm talking about something like Parasite. A a terrific grade-A movie. A great movie. And if you've seen Parasite, you know what dramatic things happen at the conclusion of the film. When you go through the movie a second time... It's a completely different experience, and it's almost worse. It's more harrowing. It's more upsetting because you know the end of the events. This movie is the exact same. So I, unfortunately, at this point in the show, the very beginning, have to do something that you never want to do at the beginning of any show. I'm going to have to tell you, if you've not seen the movie, drumroll, The Shooting, 1966, more like 1969, directed by Monty Hellman. Go find another episode of Death by DVD, or preferably stop and and go find The Shooting and watch the movie, and then come back and finish listening to this episode. Like I said, I'm aware that a good portion of our audience likes to listen to the show to see if they're going to want to watch the movie. Just trust me, just take my advice right now, watch the movie, and then come back and listen to the show, and if you absolutely hate it, then uh, skip the episode. What, what can I say? I've already told you to stop listening. But not everybody. That's not for everyone. Of course not. If you've seen the movie, we can carry on with this conversation. I just want a point to be drawn in the sand, you know, cross this point, abandon hope, ye who enter, that sort of thing. I, I, I really have trepidation, now that I put the stupid thought in my head, about talking about this movie because there are two sides of this coin. I, I want people 
to watch more movies. I want people to experience movies that they may not like, which is the whole point of this Western program that we're doing. Different Western movies, I'm going to talk about them, I'm going to explore them, and I'm going to explore the themes and the topics and all that. First episode... This is actually only the second one. The first one was Stagecoach, John Ford's Stagecoach, which I thought was a very humble beginning and a great way to get into things. We talk about not only one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, but the origin of B-Pictures and the revival of Westerns from the B-Picture. All that stuff, you can go back and hear the first episode. I deeply want people to enjoy movies more than they do. And I mean, I sure, you can sit at home and you just like to watch a movie, like to get out of your own reality. That's, that's fine, there's no problem with that, but a, a big point in the discourse on this show is trying to get people to enjoy art in different ways than they formerly had before. But then the other side of that coin is wanting to preserve the experience. I can sit here and talk about every single aspect of the movie, I can tell you what it was shot on and what the sound was like in specific scenes, and try my hardest to relay some sort of emotion so you could understand what's going on. But that takes away the experience, and in some situations, when we're talking about Andy Milligan movies, is that so bad? No, not at all. But my confliction, my problem in this situation is this is a, a very beautiful movie visually, aesthetically. If you sit and think about it too long, it's one of those things, it's like what Nietzsche said, staring into the abyss, sometimes the abyss stares back at you. This movie has the power to stare back at you. It is a movie that is completely built on assumptions. There is nothing wrong. There is nothing right. In fact, we don't know anything. We don't know what's wrong or right. We don't know what's happening for the most part, in my humble opinion. But all of those things are what end up making the movie so terrific. The experience of experiencing. So to make this long story short, we'll say it one more time. If you haven't seen the shooting, get out of here. Scoot. Go watch it. And then come back, and we'll welcome you with open arms. Alright, so that, that was a bunch of rambling. As Joe Pilato would say, a mouthful of Greek salad. That's a mouthful of Greek salad. Formulas, equations, a lot of fancy terms that don't mean a thing. Yeah, we're talking about the shooting. The Monty Hellman movie, sweet, sweet, sweet Monty Hellman. And it was written by, under a pen name, Adrian Joyce, who is actually Carol Eastman. Carol Eastman most famously wrote five easy pieces. She wrote Man Trouble. Well, if anybody remembers Man Trouble, Jack Nicholson's in that. And, um, God, Ellen Barkin or Beverly D'Angelo <laughs> or both of them. I know Harry Dean Stanton's also in the movie. It's not, uh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. Brilliant writer who, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of their work to enjoy. Uh, passed away in 2003, 2004, maybe? I think 2004. Also wrote The Fortune, 1975. And this movie was shot back-to-back -back with Ride in the Whirlwind, which originally this, this whole concept for this episode was going to be both movies, and the longer I thought about it, the more I thought, one, Ride in the Whirlwind definitely deserves its own discourse, and two, doing both of them is exasperating. They make a beautiful double feature, and I strongly suggest watching it this way. And don't give me credit for that beautiful idea, because Criterion actually put out a Blu-ray where you have both of them on the same disc, and you can do that. But they were shot back-to-back -back and made perfectly that way, largely same cast and crews. And I believe I mentioned at the beginning of this episode that these movies were produced by Roger Corman. Good old sweet, sweet, sweet Roger Corman. Monty Hellman is sweet, Roger Corman's sweet, everybody's sweet, Carol Eastman's sweet, everybody is sweet. sweet. And really, now that I'm being sarcastic, there is truth to that. Every single person that is involved in both productions, we're not going to talk about Ride into the Whirlwind, but both productions at whole are filled with geniuses, filled with really talented people, 
And that goes for everyone, the PAs, the DP, everyone involved makes them what they are. This movie was shot in 1965, so this is an era when exploitation films are really starting to find their market, and Roger Corman's genius, the, the Roger Corman Film School, as I like to call it, started to bloom. The director of this movie, Monty Hellman, he goes way back. I would say before the Roger Corman Film School really started. His first movie was Beast from Haunted Cave, which was produced by Roger Corman's brother. So he was there for the foundation. He was one of the guys that saw the rise of Corman. He was business partners, Monty Hellman, with Jack Nicholson at the time period, 1964, and they were working for Roger. They'd been in the Philippines, I believe, shooting two movies back-to-back -back for Roger Corman. They came back to L.A., and Roger wanted to do a Western. Monty, Jack, and Roger all have lunch, and the end of that lunch, it came out with, I kind of want to do two Westerns. And I'll be blunt with this. Roger Corman isn't the type of guy that's going to fuck around with money. If you can kill two, three, four, five, six, seven birds with one stone, then he's going to throw that one stone as hardly as possible and figured we can get two movies out of this. So Jack Nicholson found an office space to rent right next door to Fred Astaire, and they began working. Jack wrote a story with an outline that became Ride into the Whirlwind, and Carol Eastman took an idea and followed a motion and wrote something called The Shooting. <laughs> The idea loosely comes from a Jack London story where a group of people are sitting around a fire looking at this painting, a painting of action, a painting of somebody dying, and each and every one of them are wondering how it came to this conclusion, but nobody actually knowing, everyone coming to these assumptions, none of them being wrong, and none of them being right, them just being nothing, really. And that's really what this story is about, if there is a story, because it is no wrong or right. It is completely assumption. Now, personally, I find the making of this movie to be vaguely interesting. It's early Roger Corman production, Jack Nicholson's involved. I can do an abridged version. Jack Nicholson and Monty Hellman produced, they went around, they found some locations, and then they shot the movie. The most interesting fact, I think, when it comes to the making of this movie is how it, it really got cast. Monty Hellman had this idea in his head of, I guess, a very a very typical male Western lead. He wanted Sterling Hayden for the role, and he was at a bookstore in California. And as the story goes, the idea just popped into his head that I need Will Hutchins, Millie Perkins, and specifically Warren Oates for this job. He'd apparently seen Warren Oates performing in a stage version of Ken Kesey's One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, so I can't help but wonder maybe he was looking at a Ken Kesey book. Maybe it was One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. Could be too on the nose. Who am I to be presumptive of something that happened over 50 years ago? But, eh, it makes sense, right? And that's, um, a, a, such a, a different direct change from, from wanting a leading man as Sterling Hayden and going with Warren Oates, who I neglected to mention is the lead in this movie. Have I even said what the movie is about? Nope. It's about a mysterious woman who approaches some miners in the desert. She needs to get somewhere and offers to pay them to lead her to where she needs to go. Very simplistic. My account of the movie sounds very, very bland and very, very vague. But truth be told, everything about the movie is vague. That's what sets it up to be what I dare say is spectacular. And just a little while ago, I had referenced Parasite and made a comparison between the two. But the surprise aspect of those movies aside, I think they do have a bit more in common. And I would say the shooting is a predecessor to something like Parasite. And though Parasite deals with heavily political matters, 
there is some thought, there is some aftermath of things that had happened in the United States, the Kennedy assassination happening a year or so before the writing of this movie and the production went to. They are, it's not completely transparent. They are visible in the movie. It's not political by any means. There are no homages or no references to it, but the end of the film, the whole part that needs to be kept in secrecy, it's definitely there. But now that I'm thinking about it, a great deal of what makes Parasite so theatrical, so dramatic, is deeply borrowing from something like the shooting and how the story unfolds. I mentioned that Warren Oates is in this movie. I love Warren Oates. He's often called an everyman actor, but I think there's much more to him than that. And this was, I would say, considerably the first time that he had a leading role in a film. I just mentioned that he had done the lead in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest that Monty Hellman had seen him in. And before this, he had done a great deal of acting, but he wasn't a household name. He was a character actor, if anything. I don't think he was given a tremendous amount of credit for his character acting until he started working with people like Monty Hellman. He mostly appeared as a heavy. And again, it goes right back to that whole Sterling Hayden thing. So it, it, when this was in creation, when this was in everybody's minds, I think it was a much more typical idea of a Western. But they also might have been really trying to appeal more to... Roger Corman's sense of westerns, who his very first pictures, I think his first four pictures, were western movies. And they were exasperatingly action-packed western movies. They were very traditional western movies in that sense, that they were B-pictures. There was something happening every few seconds. There were fights, there were gunfights, there were brawls, there were adventures. There was the literal cowboy and Indian plots. And I, I think, unfortunately, the way I'm talking about this movie right now makes it sound like it's a B-picture. I'm referencing Roger Corman endlessly. We're talking about his first movies. Anything but. The shooting is anything but. In fact, this movie is as nuanced as a French New Wave movie. And you can listen to the commentary that Criterion put out featuring Bill Crone, Blake Lucas, and Monty Hellman himself. There are many comparisons to the work of Antonioni and Fellini. But you can also draw comparisons from John Ford or John Huston. Or Marlon Brando, One-Eyed Jacks. What makes this movie special, what made me attracted to it, what made me want to feature it on the show, is, I think, really the concepts. Or the concept that I see the movie as. I know I've brought this up many times before on Death by DVD. In fact, I think on the very last episode of this show, I was talking about this. I have a passion for movies, plays, stories that just take place in one setting. One very small, cramped, tiny setting that forces you to see the acting that forces you, to see the emotion, to experience it, to feel all of these things. It's a very difficult thing to write, it's a very difficult thing to pull off. That's why you don't see it very often. The shooting is all that, but almost in opposition to it. Instead of one small, tight location, it's a, a grand, massive, huge location. We're in the desert, we're in the wild west, we're surrounded by nothing. Scorching hot days, freezing nights. It's primeval almost. It looks like a land before time. It looks alien. But when you stare at it long enough, it's just the, the same contrast of brown and beige and dark blue, maybe a sparse bit of green here and there. And you begin watching the performances. And what this picture is, is, is performances. There's dialogue in the movie, and we'll probably talk about this more in just a little while, but the dialogue... It doesn't drive anything, and it doesn't matter as much as what's happening and what you watch. While you're watching Warren Oates, you're watching Millie Perkins, you're watching Will Hutchins, you're watching Jack Nicholson. And I guess that's a grand way to bring up the cast of this movie. I know I said their names earlier, but Millie Perkins plays 
The Woman, Will Hutchins plays Coley, Jack Nicholson plays Billy Spears, and the late great Warren Oates plays Willet Gashade. Or as Millie Perkins' character, Woman, calls him through the whole movie, Gashade. It's an eclectic group of characters, and I'll talk more about them, the characters, in just a second. For the first part of the movie, you have three characters, and then a fourth and the second half is introduced. And briefly, in that time period, you, I feel, come to recollection of your surroundings, and you reimagine and see the desert. But when the movie starts, you start to transcend. You are enchanted. I'm enchanted. Caught up in the, the, the performances and the ambiguity. Right from the start, the very first scene of the movie, all you hear is the name coin, and then there is assumptions. All you are allowed to do is assume, because you're never given anything directly. The very first scene of this movie shows Warren Oates traveling on horseback through some very rough land. He hears something, maybe. You assume he hears something. And he cuts a bag of flour on the back of his horse, which appears to be leading a trail. Why? I don't know. We can only assume I just fucking said that. And I'm not going to scene by scene. This is what happens next. Then Warren Oates looks to the camera and he looks up. And you can only assume. That'll ruin the experience. But the movie begins laden in mystery, laden in assumption, and follows completely through in that suit. And you've got very quick-witted, strange dialogue at the beginning of the movie. And I don't mean strange like this over-witticism shit that Quentin Tarantino does that suddenly every single person has something incredibly clever to say. Or like Rob Zombie, where everyone says pussy fart motherfucker every two or three seconds. The dialogue is not like you experience in a western movie. It's almost as if everything is asked with a question, like there's an emphasis on the back of it. Except for Will Hutchins' performance as Cooley, which is incredibly innocent. He plays a very boyish character, a very childlike character, who is just in, in possibly infatuated with the idea that just something is going on and or the assumptions. What drives all of us in our daily lives, even, our assumptions. You don't know anything. None of us really do. It's not... That's not a half-cocked statement. You don't know anything. You don't know what the government's doing. But you fucking don't, though. You don't know what your neighbor's doing. You don't know what your best friend is thinking when he's sitting next to you. Everything is built on assumptions. And when you try to frame something like that, when you try and... And I mean framing in the sense of making a movie. You gotta look at this through each scene. How are we going to build something on assumptions? How are we going to continue mystifying you? And I'm sure if it was up to Monty Hellman, this movie probably would have only had two or three minutes worth of dialogue, but Roger Corman was really insistent. We have to have a point. We have to let people know at the beginning of the movie what the point is so they have something to follow. Audiences don't listen. Audiences can't do two things at once. They can only watch what's introduced to you on screen or they can hear it, so you have to be repetitive over and over and over again. And the beginning of this movie does feature a great deal of repetitiveness that... I think, thankfully, because of the insistence of Roger Corman, when the movie shuts up, when it gets quiet, it leaves you reeling, wondering, why were all these things said? Why was the information given to me given to me? And you're given some very strange facts. And then the movie sputters to life and completely shoots off into a different direction. The movie begins with Warren Oates leading a trail back to his camp. And when he finally gets there, somebody opens fire on him. He finds a grave, and somebody starts shooting at him. We find out a few moments later that our lead character, Willick Gashade, is running some sort of gold mining operation. He left to go get supplies, and after he left, his brother and another one of his workers went into town. All of this is being told to us by Will Hutchins' character, Coley. And this performance is, it's beyond excitable. There, there's a lot of purity in, in every performance in this movie, but Will Hutchins, to really draw a line under his name, there's something disheartening about his style of character. I feel a character like him is always placed into a movie because there is going to be some sort of woe. 
there's going to be some sort of tragedy with them, and you know it's going to happen because they're the clear innocent. They're unlike everyone else in the movie, and it might be something subtle as, in this situation, the boy-like nature, the excitement of this character. And he's telling the story to Gashade. He's letting him know what happened. He says, your brother Coin and Leland, which is the other guy, they went off into town, and then they came back, and they were arguing. They were upset. They were arguing about a man and a little person, maybe a child, that had been run down in the street by coin. Coley explains that he thinks they may have been drunk. They were loud. They were angry. And then Willick Gashade's brother, Coin, jumped on a horse and rode off. The next morning, he looked outside and saw Leland having coffee by the fire, and suddenly, his head exploded. Someone shot him. Someone that Coley didn't see. And that's our mystery. That's our action. That's that's the first five, six minutes of the movie we're introduced to all of this. And right at this moment, I feel the landscape begins to detach from what we're watching. I feel it gets to a point that you are so enchant that you are so enchanted by the actors and the subtleness of their performance, the the realness of their performance. It's like everything goes black. It's like a, a play with absolutely nothing on stage, with nothing but a void behind them. The stillness, the sameness, the color palette, everything just starts to mold into itself until you can only wholly recognize the performances. And it begins so easily, and some of the things that cause this is even how the transition shots are set up. When you go into a memory, there is no fade, there is no dissolve, it's just immediate. It's, it's like it's being told, you're just going in and out of time, and there's no real differential between it because nothing matters but the performances. Am I getting repetitive? But to me, that blows my concept up just, just infinitely because you can manage to shoot in such a wide, beautiful space and it, it's just as confined, it's just as tight because it's the emotion and the animosity that all of these strangers have with one another. And I've not even gotten to the strangers. A woman shows up at the camp, played by Millie Perkins, and she needs to go somewhere. She knows who Gashade is. She mentions in a past life that he was a bounty hunter and that he knows how to track. And he tells her just that. That's something I did once to make money. I, I work an honest job. I'm a miner. He has no interest in taking her where she needs to go. All these incidents, all these things have happened in just a matter of minutes. He comes back to the camp. He gets shot at by his own guy, learns one of his men has been murdered and his brother has disappeared. And then the stranger shows up. And herein lies again another one of the faults and problems of trying to even discuss this movie because you're explaining it. I'm telling you what happens and all of this sounds... Ooh, I get to use one of my favorite words here. Jejun. It sounds so bland, it sounds so plain, but it also sounds like uh, the most typical Western story. And the magic really comes from here on out. Obviously, we're not going to have a movie unless Willet Gashade takes up the woman's offer and decides to take her where she wants to go, and it becomes a crisscross road movie at this point. And th you can really argue, is this a road movie or is this a chase movie? But the fact that it's by Monty Hellman, the man that made Tulane Blacktop, probably the greatest road movie of all time, I'm gonna... I'm gonna say it's a road movie. And I really feel it is, because you go on this uncanny adventure, and we don't know anything about anyone. We know two of our characters are minors, and one of them is a woman that wants to go somewhere. But from this point out, it becomes mystifying. To me, it becomes these riders on horseback just traveling into the bleak black nothing, and you lose track of even where they are. And what helps really accentuate this is so many of the scenes, the technical aspects of this movie, they couldn't do a lot of dolly shots because they're out in the desert. So when you're watching people riding around and talking, Monty Hellman just had them riding in a circle and it makes it almost hypnotic. It, it almost sets you into a trance where you aren't acknowledging anything else. You're really captivated. You're really fixated on 
what's happening and what's not happening. And what's not happening is anything that makes sense, but everything is entirely deliberate. Everything that's put on scene, every cut, every transition, every shot that you are experiencing is 100% deliberate in the unfolding of the story and making it harrowing. The anxiety begins immediately. You have an assumption. You, you are allowed to have an assumption, and none of them are right, and none of them are wrong. You assume at the very beginning of the movie something is related. All of this stuff has to be related. Why else would it have been shown to us? And you start following that hunch, and each time something happens, for example, Millie Perkins' character, the woman, she's, she's brash. She's, to use the term, a bitch. That's what you think the whole movie. She's such a bitch. She's, she's so angry all the time. Why does she even want to go to these places? All she's doing is jerking Warren Oates' character around. And it's from the start, from the moment he accepts the job and is going to take her to where she wants to go. She wants to get rid of the donkey. She doesn't want food to be taken with them. It's a 14-day ride, but she wants to leave at sunset. They've got to get where they're going, all the while randomly shooting her gun. What seemingly, you would think, is randomly, and causing general havoc. She can't stand the company she's with, and it begins agitating you, it begins grating on your gears. You start hating this character, you know nothing about her, and you can only assume what she's doing. Suddenly, the information that was bestowed upon you at the beginning of this movie, you don't really care about anymore. Alright, a bunch of stuff happened, his brother's missing, but what's going on with this character? Why is she so negative? Why is she, as I said, a bitch? Which, at its core, the word bitch is misogynistic to the bone. It's a defiling of women, it is a term used to belittle, and I think that's the point. I think really, it's never said in this movie, but I think this character is, is portrayed as a bitch for a very poignant point. Everything about this movie, I think, is a cross-reference of emotion. You, you are led to believe and feel one thing, when in actuality, it's a, it's a completely different feeling on the other spectrum that you need to be acknowledging, but it's like a big Venn diagram. They all meet in the middle and push and force all of these things onto you. And that's what I mean about trying to really get and divulge into the meat and, and what's happening in this movie. But it, it's a road movie and these people are traveling from one place to another, but the locations and the places don't even seem to matter. The dialogue is mostly aggression, but through the acting and watching these characters, you are, are progressively shown more and more of the aggression. So it gets to a tennis game of a point of what matters more. Is it this dialogue or is it this action? And I think it's it's... I'm saying action, like there's shootouts or chases, but it's it's three people on a horse riding through the desert. The woman lets the donkey with all the food go. Coley is obsessed with her. He's smitten with the idea of her, and she's a mysterious, beautiful woman. Millie Perkins plays this character with a, a childlike awe, but it's razor-sharp and dangerous. The first time we actually experience and see her visage of the character, she's standing upon this hill looking down at everyone, and she seems almost like some sort of mythical creature. She's standing upon this hill, and Cooley is surprised. He's shocked. He says, it's a woman. But that itself helps us expound upon what I just said, this, this mythical character, a woman in a western. That's not uncommon. And a good western, as Monty Hellman actually once said, is 50-50. The cowboy and the woman. But prior to this, you had a very typical maiden, most... Western movies are fashioned after the Greek epics. You've got your hero, and then you've got the women that need saving. Here, there's something different. All you're allowed to do with this character is, as I've said numerous times, assume. But the tenacity that Millie Perkins brings to this character is something that was unknown, and I think really one of the first performances of its time period when it came to a Western. The character has venom. The character, to me, is a representation of the ominous man in black. A character that is often a representation of death. 
But she's no damsel in distress, even from the first moments of us encountering her. It's, it's not this wishy-washy story of a little lady needing some cowboys to take her on a ride. There's something deliberate about it. There's something deliberate about absolutely everything that we're experiencing. And we're not seeing this through anyone's eyes. We're experiencing this as if we're a part of all of this. We're just as confused as everyone else. It's the ambiance. It becomes all too intense, and it, it sounds like a bunch of nothing. But it's all heavily layered. You've got these concepts of uh, the idea of people, the ideas of who people are and what they stand for, and none of this connects. None of it comes to a point. You are so detached from any form of reality, their reality, your reality, you're just kind of thrown into this situation, but that's the point. All of them are, too. All right. This... Seems like a good place to take a break from all the rambling, and we are going to play a quick commercial from a sponsor. What do you know about oats? <laughs> We all know horses love oats, but do you know who else loves oats? Warren Oats! That's right, charismatic character actor Warren Oats was a man who took his name seriously. With artisan skill and advanced craftsmanship, the world's finest oats were assembled to create the greatest breakfast cereal of all time. Warren's Oats! You've seen him in the Wild Bunch. Bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia, the shooting, and more. Now, eat his oats! Warren's Oats. It's a great way to start the day. The Warren Oats Way. And now, for a word about Warren's Oats, it's Warren Oats! Ahem. I have just been informed that Warren Oats has been dead since 1982. I apologize. <laughs> Warren's Oats. Try them for breakfast. Get a box today at a Walmart near you. Hey, I'm Steve. I'm CryptoZoo. And we co-host the Steve and Crypto Show, where we chat about pop culture, horror, entertainment, and everything in between. And right now, you're listening to one of our favorite shows, Death by DVD. When you're done listening to the Death by DVD gang, find us, the Steve and Crypto Show. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and just about anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. And now, enjoy Death by DVD. Wow. 
you can assume that Willet Gashade has an idea about something. And to touch more upon the assumptions, throughout the movie, Willett says to Coley several times, I've just got a, a feeling, I've got an idea, I've got to follow through. And Coley thinks it's about the money, and that's what you're led to think. That's, I think, keep saying think a lot, huh? Is a very important emphasis in this movie, is, is it's all led to be about, is you just can't believe it's about the money, the conditions they're working under, the woman that's leading them into the desert for some unknown mission has cut their food supply loose, she won't tell them what she's looking for. It's not worth it. Wandering to your own death for a paycheck? It, it's not worth it, and that becomes clear within the first 30 minutes of the movie. Willett's not doing this for the money. Coley, on the other hand, he's an innocent. When Willett's brother went on the run, he took Coley's horse. And there's a scene in the movie where they come upon a town and Coley finds his horse. Its foot's cracked, it's not going to be any use, but he still demands and fights with Willett for $50 so he can pay to keep the pony just standing and eating until he comes back. Aww. We get these brief glimpses of who these people are, what they stand for, who they are under the hardness of having to live into the Wild West, except the woman. All we see is frustration and rage and anger that continuously mounts more and more and more as we progress through this awful terrain. We know she's looking for someone, but who and why? As the tension progresses, the woman constantly is firing off into the desert. Three, four shots, five, six shots, a different amount every time. Well, it suggests that she's firing off for somebody to follow her. Coley, he's just smitten and doesn't care about anything. But that's the truth of the matter, and we're introduced to our fourth and final character in this movie, Jack Nicholson playing Billy Spear. Now, in this day and age, I think everybody is very familiar with Jack Nicholson playing psychopaths. He does it very well, and since the late 70s to now, he does it fairly often. Even when it's not a horror picture, he made that movie with Adam Sandler, Anger Management, where he just plays an unhinged guy screaming and yelling all the time. It's really what Jack Nicholson has become familiar with. Try and imagine an era before that. This is that era. Jack Nicholson has never played a psychopath. Never. Oh, I might be spoiling things a little bit here. Am I giving away his character? Big surprise, Jack Nicholson plays a psycho. This was the, the first time he'd really done something like this, that he had played the, the manipulative, evil sociopath. And it's all assumption. What I am completely saying is assumption, and this is the worst episode of Death by DVD ever. And... Uh, <laughs> That's no joke, Hank. You ain't lying, brother. Woo! Really though, I, I I know I'm 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 bouncing around and I'm fumbling through things, and that's what I said at the beginning of the episode. There's a big problem here. I have so many thoughts and concepts, and there's so much I want to chatter and I want to say. And we'll get back to Jack Nicholson and his early career and playing psychopaths in just a second. We're taking a little bit of a segue here, but I I really respect this movie. I, I have a, a, a and I I think that's a strange statement itself. I respect this movie. It's an inanimate object. And there are no people's feelings that are going to get hurt. Monty Hellman's dead. Warren Oates is dead. Jack Nicholson doesn't give a shit. I don't think Will Hutchins or Millie Perkins would either. It, it's just the art. It's, it's how the story is told. It's the mounting pressure. It's the devious nature of everything that's happening. But all the while, you're just assuming it's devious. And I know I keep using that. That's the word of the night. It's like Pee Wee's Playhouse. Yay! Assumption! Woo! Scream assumption! <laughs> Good screaming, everybody! But now, you know, I've been rambling and babbling and I'm getting heated about stuff, I'm getting passionate about stuff, and I, I'm just, I'm coming back to the same circle. I'm myself just wandering 
And and that's what this movie leads you to do. And you can you can have absolutions. Yes, everything can have an absolution. I can tell you this is what happens in the movie. This is my assumption of what happens in the movie and how I believe things to be true from point A to point B. But that's so fucking boring, man. I don't want to tell you how to think. And I do sometimes. I I give full reviews of movies, and it's 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 my brain. It's it's my exposition, you know? It's my side. It, it's my interpretation of things. And I just don't, I, I adamantly don't want to do that with this movie. I just want to continuously say it's all beautiful, blind assumptions that makes the magic in this movie. But, but imagine writing that. Imagine the integrity that you have to take upon yourself to really convincibly put these characters in a place to, to give them animosity, but at the same time a shroud of mystery to where no one's happy. You have ideas and understanding, but none of it is coherent and connecting, but the project and the, the product is coherent and connecting. I don't know if we've ever really done a, a review like this, because the more I talk about the movie, the less I want to talk about the movie. Uh, we, we've gotten up to the scene with Jack Nicholson. He's finally introduced. And this, for, for audiences, is, is mind-blowing. I think now, even for audiences, especially with that whole rant I went on, you know who Jack Nicholson is? He's played all these crazy assholes before. Yes, you've seen The Shining. Even he... Is, is, is innocent in this, and he plays a very typical cowboy character, a gunslinger character. He, Billy Spear, is who Millie Perkins, the woman, has been shooting randomly for. It's all been a sign, as will it assume, to lead him forward. So clearly, Billy Spear is not a tracker. But he's got that John Carradine look, dressed in black leather. He looks like a gun-shooting, card-playing son of a gun stud. And it's not just it being a young and early performance from Jack Nicholson, but it's it's the earnest actor and artist inside of him that it, it's eerie. He's eerie. He's uncomfortable. But everyone is. Absolutely everything about the movie is uncomfortable, so I find myself just stuck. I'm, I'm stuck in this elevator of hell going up and down, and I'm, I'm never getting anywhere because I, I take a few inches and I start telling you something, and then I take a few inches back, and I'm just fucking talking about the same thing. I'm sorry, Jack Nicholson. That was terrible. I didn't sound anything like him. Just as everything else is in this movie, his character Billy is built on assumptions and is very mysterious. Why is he following them? Why has the woman been firing off shots to let him know where they are? It's all ambiguity. It's all mystery. And the editing is really what pushes it at this point. I think as the movie progresses, the editing becomes hotter and hotter and more clever. We get these really fast cuts, these quick transitions between what's happening and the dialogue. And of course, it's Jack Nicholson, so everything is very, very sarcastic. And he's playing a real hot character. He's playing a killer. He's playing a, what you can only assume to be a bounty hunter. Every character has some sort of intent, but it's all mystery to us. The puzzle pieces are available, but it seems like a few are missing. Everything comes down to the action of these characters, and without that, you really wouldn't have anything. The bits and pieces of the dialogue you get are important, but is it important that Gashade was a bounty hunter before this? They're, they're rumors. None of it fits into anything outside of he knows how to get somewhere, and for some reason this woman wants him to take her there. It's how we see it that matters the most, and the storytelling device which allows us to see it is, is a non-narrative format. We are just watching this. We are in the dust. We're in the wind with them. We're in the nothing. We're just waiting to see what the shooting is. Who's going to get shot, and why? I mean, after all, the movie's called The Shooting. So, you would assume and presume there's going to be one. But who? Really, the why starts to even fade away. You're not really questioning anything at this point. I'd say a good 
45 minutes into the movie, all questions are out the door, and this isn't a significantly long film. We've got a runtime of one hour and 22 minutes, 45 minutes into the film, we've got a new character that's introduced to us, and the pace completely changes here. A lot of the mystery is strained, but more mystique is added. The dialogue begins to quicken, but it's, it's pointless dialogue. The characters begin to rub against one another, the tension begins to rise, but there's nothing significant that we learn from anything that's said. All that we learn is what's happening in this travel. All we learn is the emotions from their faces, from the strained relationship, from how painful this all is. But why? What is the pain? We know Willett's following through on a feeling that he has. Coley's just sticking with Willett because that's his boss. But what's the point of Billy Spears and this quest of the woman? When Jack Nicholson enters, we also sort of change how things look. Previous to that, we've been in a very flat desert. Everything has been beige and brown. There's been faded greens. You've got the very stark blue transition from the sky back down to those earth tones. But it's all flat. It all seems nothing. Now we see this alien world, everything begins changing, everything starts to become more dramatic. There are these giant mountains off in the vast distance and these huge rock structures everywhere. The color of the dirt even begins to change. It, it, it seems like it becomes more gray and distant and vague. And a lot of this has to do now with the, the color grading and the changes that Criterion did to the movie. But I think those were intentional. The original film and what you can hear on the commentary track that Criterion put out featuring Monty Hellman, he talks about the transitions and the original movie, there are some things that you just couldn't see the way it was shot. And of course, they're out there shooting with 35mm in the fucking desert. You're not going to capture a great deal of the beauty. So I, I think really the preferable way, I, I, I can't speak for Monty Hellman because he is deceased, I think the preferable way that Monty Hellman would want you to see the movie is what the, the Criterion restoration is, because there are some sequences that, previous to this, you could not see whatsoever. If you saw this on television, you saw an old version of this on Turner Classics or something like that, there are pieces that are incredibly important that were lost to the grain of film. One of the beautiful things about this movie is that from the first scene to the end, you are stricken with some form of emotion, whether it's confusion Empathy, anger, lust even, which is the same thing Will Hutchins' character Coley's feeling. But when Billy Spear enters the picture, I think the emotion drastically changes. I think the confusion, the angst, the anger, the direction of the emotion completely changes to a point that it's no longer a road movie. I think you've got one quarter, maybe one half of this movie would, is definitely, it, it's a road movie, and then it quickly and venomously becomes a chase movie. But we don't know anything. We don't know what the chase is. And the concept of that, I think, to me, is, is maybe the most charming thing about the movie. You've got a chase movie, Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior. That's a chase movie. Might be the granddaddiest of them all. I mean, it, it's an incredibly pure movie. What's it about? Some people in cars chasing each other around. And come on, that's Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior. Fucking people in cars are chasing each other around. And that's what we're introduced to with that movie. That's the feeling that you have throughout every single scene that you're watching. It's anticipation, it's action, it's the chase. And you know what they're chasing. You know what the point is. They're going after the gasoline, baby. Here, there isn't even a vague nature of what's happening. It's, it's a complete lack thereof. You have no idea at this point why they're out there. And they have been out there for so long. They're running low on water. They have no food. And everyone is slowly, I wouldn't say going crazy, but they're going crazy. 
And this is all tension you feel. This is all represented beautifully on screen, and that's what makes this the experience that it is, is you, you find yourself uncomfortable. You find yourself wishing for the end of this movie, and you hope the minutes start passing by faster and faster, and you want it to end all the while you're enchanted by it. You can't stop looking away. And uh, that can be said for so many horror pictures. It's, it's I think, a very similar aspect and feeling that it, it draws you in. You watch these awful things happen. You don't want to see somebody's fingernails get ripped out but you can't look away you know it's a movie in this situation it doesn't even feel like a movie it, it goes right back to what is the orthodox manner of making a western movie and that was ripping off the greeks ripping off greek tragedies and it was the greatest format look at all the great ones even my darling clementine which is based off of a, a real event the gunfight at the okay corral with the the Earp brothers and doc holiday nothing in real life is as beautiful and telling hey fuck tombstone even i'm talking about my darling clementine you've got this whole love plot that fits into all of these movies somehow there's a love story and people are dying and they're getting shot up or you could go to the more savage B-movie based westerns where they go kill a bunch of Native Americans and they go and fall in love with the Indian squaw and take her away from her quote-unquote savage lifestyle and everything's okay, we killed your whole family and your entire tribe but now you get to go live with white men, isn't that fucking awesome? Uh -uh. None of that's here, none of that's present, all of it's, it's, it's flipped on its head completely. Millie Perkins' character as the woman is exasperatingly confusing. You want to hate her, but why? Because of her attitude, you don't know why she's acting the way she's acting. Why is Willett acting the way he's acting? Billy Spear, he's a fucking psychopath. Jack Nicholson might have been one of his many callings in life. I wouldn't say his definitive calling, but playing a psychopath, a sociopath, God, the man's beautiful at it. And he's scary, but everything is scary. It's the unknown nature. Really, xenophobia itself plays into this movie because it all is a fear of the unknown, but you don't know what the fuck's happening. <laughs> the whole movie, you just don't know anything, and I... Oh, I've talked myself into a circle because I'm just tired now. I've said the same thing over and over and over again, and I, I hope at, at some point of saying the same thing over and over and over again, I might have sold the idea of you watching this movie, but... I think I think I really just kind of talked myself into a circle. I mean, what do you do on a movie review podcast where you're supposed to talk about the movie, but you don't want to give away the, 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 what, God, what do you even want to say? Give away what? It's not that I want, I'm afraid of giving away the ending. You can spoil something and still watch it, it doesn't matter, but I think when you haven't seen this movie, and even for people that have, it's on the tip of my tongue what happens, or what I presume to happen, because I'll let you know right the fuck now, you don't get to know anything. It's all assumptions, man. It's all complete and absolute assumptions. I mean, you, you could take it that you learned something at the end of this movie. You could take it that you get a resolution. You can take anything however you want to. You can watch Apocalypse Now and think that they all go home and have a really great time at the end of it. <laughs> but it might not actually be how things end. It's all presumptive. It's all assumptive. It just... Uh, I was talking at the beginning of the show about where this movie came from, this idea. It came from a Jack London story where a bunch of people, they're, they're in a, a hunting lodge or at a bar or something like that, and they're looking at this painting, and every single person in this room is, is looking at the painting, and they're trying to figure out how it got to that point. And with this movie, you have all these different characters, and you look and you try to assume or presume how all these different characters got to the points they're in, and none of it really matters. I think the beautiful thing about this movie is what it tells you through its action is that nothing really matters. And uh, you can take that philosophically, and I mean it more in a filmic 
and filmmaking standpoint, you have the ability to do anything you want to. That's the beautiful thing about writing and the beautiful thing about film. You can, you can do anything and everything. And you can make it so vastly nothing that it becomes, I, I, I don't know, almost beautifully entangled in the fact that it's, it's, it's just a vast amount of nothing. And when you come to the conclusion of this movie, when you, when you get to the end of the hunt, when you get to the end of the road and all of these people stop traveling with one another, the conclusion to me is not even nearly as heartbreaking as what you experience while you're watching it, as, as what you go through and the turmoil that you feel as you're going through it. And all of that is because 100%, I'm going to say, Millie Perkins and War Notes. Jack Nicholson is great. He really is. Will Hutchins is Cooley is, is, I think I've said his name like nine different times. <laughs> Coley, Cooley, Cooley, Coley, Coley, Cooley. It's a beautiful performance and it's a level of innocence that's often not seen and contained correctly in film, especially by a male actor that there's this, they're either too childlike or they're too boy-like. And there's something beautiful about what Will Hutchins brings to the table with this character that it just seems to be this ethereal innocence, a, a true innocence that you can believe in that, that knows wrong from right. But at the same time, you just kind of want to, you know, if you see dirt on their face, lick your finger and get it off of them. Even though it's a grown man, there's something that is wholesome about what he plays. And this comes in format with this coldness this calculating mysterious nature that the millie perkins woman character plays and then you've got this devastating debonair dashing jack nicholson playing billy spear who you know you know by how he's dressed you know by his lingo his dialogue that he's deadly he's like a copperhead he's like a rattlesnake and then warren oates is the everyman but he's not we're given ideas about him, but we don't know, is he an everyman? Is he a good man? It doesn't matter. What we're given is this crisis, this, this just anxiety attack. And uh, the, the movie that was shot back-to-back -back with this ride in the whirlwind, they're very similar in the nothingness. And I don't mean that in like a, a, a Frederick Nietzsche sort of way. I, I mean it more in a, I don't know, an Albert Camus sort of way. <laughs> I'm just saying fucking names at this point. I know that might not matter to you, but what I'm saying is it's not a negative thing. The nothing isn't the nothing. It's not nihilism. It's nothing to be afraid of. The nothing is the beautiful nature of nothing. You can make a movie and it be about nothing, but it's about everything at the same time. And Ride into the Whirlwind and the shooting happen to be movies about nothing that are about everything. The shooting is a story about a bunch of people that go off into the desert for a reason. What the reason is, why they're doing it, it doesn't really matter. The shooting is a movie that I think really defines movies, defines the idea of escapism through movies. The fact that you can sit down and you can and you can spend the next hour or twenty some minutes filled with questions and be stricken with even more at the end of it, but somehow manage to come out whole. When this movie ends, the location has changed, and it's no longer this great nothing. We've turned into a very alien landscape, and it really looks like the photos you see from the Mars rover. Just mountains of nothing that you can't climb over that lead to nothing. Almost like where the story has gone. And where we're at now in this episode of Death by DVD, I don't believe I've given anything away. I don't think I've spilled the bean. Watch you spill your beans. 
just been your beans. And I'd like to keep it that way. The beginning of the movie almost seems to have a sense of familiarity. At least you can acknowledge the actions and the behavior of humans. But when we get to the end of it, everyone is so detached from that. Everything is so alien itself. Everything you're looking at, the atmosphere, the environment is so different. I think you're left with more questions than when you enter this. Namely, what happens to everyone? What happens to our characters? Some of them are dispatched along the way. But at the end of the film, the woman and Willet still stand. What does it mean? That, I think, is the greatest interpretation. I think that is the greatest assumption that you could have for yourself. And what does it all mean to me? Nothing. It's all nothing. That's the point. It's just a shooting. You knew it was going to happen the whole time. You just didn't know when, or who, or why. And I don't think you really do at the end of the movie either. I mean, you got the who, you've got the when, but the why, it's there, maybe. You can just go on with it. The story doesn't really stop. There, there is no resolution. There is no ending. It's infinite. You really can go on with it, and I think that's the beautiful thing. The movie says the end. It ends with the same word that was said at the very beginning of the film, but it just ends. There is no, there is no text at the end of the movie that says, Willet Gashade went on to be a star football player, and the woman later opened a Pontiac dealership. No, there is none of that. It just goes to black. Not even a fade. It's just the end. And I think the present nature of that is life. I think that's just how everything is in life. It ends or it begins or it stops. Things just like relationships, love, life, people die, you break up with somebody, it just stops. Things stop. That doesn't mean you don't have questions. That doesn't mean you don't think about it. That doesn't mean it doesn't resound in your head and you wonder why. And the end of this movie makes you wonder why. All of it makes you wonder why. And there is a yin and yang to this. You're left with all this wondering. You're left with more questions than you had at the beginning of the movie. You're, you're, I think, left in awe and disbelief. You're left shock and with woe. I think it's very heartbreaking. I think the end of this movie is desolate. But that can be said for the entirety of the film itself. It's a very desolate picture. The answer to these questions, the yin to these questions, would be right into the whirlwind. But that is for another day. Despite this episode being about the shooting, I can really say this whole experience was probably a true ride into the whirlwind. I know I've been all over the place. And you don't know how close it came to this episode actually becoming a Paul Bartell movie. But I wanted to stick with it. I feel even though this might seem like an incomplete episode, I feel this is going to listen as a very chaotic piece, a very disconnected ride. But I, I, what I really want to emphasize here, I guess, is, is something that is a bit selfish, but I, I really, really am passionate about this movie, and that was where the whole directive came from. I, I want to talk about something I really like. I want to share this with people. I, I want people to experience the, the, the massive amount of emotions I feel when I watch this movie. It's not just one or two. There's a whole fucking realm of them. I want people to enjoy Warren Oates. I want people to see how great Millie Perkins is and just uh, frightening. This character that doesn't even do something scary is frightening. Jack Nicholson, before he was the Jack Nicholson we all know and love, I want you to feel it. I want you to, I want you to like the movie I, I fucking like. Long story short here, and it's just been... A gunfight. It's been a real ride into the West. 
But it seems to me that this has been more like an episode of the Chris Farley show. Hey, you know that movie that I really like? It was really good. You should see it, because I like it. It's really mysterious. But I guess every episode can't be a winner. As we reach the end of this show, I guess the whole point of this is, dang, I should have done Ride into the Whirlwind. I mean, what type of movie show are you listening to where I'm trying to sell you a movie that I want you to see, all the while refusing to talk about it and giving you any sort of information about the movie? This sounds terrible. This this whole concept, as I've been talking this whole time, it's just I'm shaking my head. Oh, this this is not. This isn't good. I think this movie has a lot more to offer than meets the eye, and when you look at it as a Western, modern audiences, it's going to push you away. You're not going to want to experience the mystery and the mystique and the fear and the anxiety that's within this movie. But I think it needs to be directly referenced and and capitalized and called a Western. I think this movie should never be called a thriller. It should never be called a mystery. It should never be called a revenge film. And it does have all of those things inside of it, but what it needs to most importantly be called is a Western because it is an enlightening Western. It is not just a genre-defying thing, but the appearance and the performance of females, women in general, in Western pictures was, was never like this before. And this definitely opened up the door to even horrible movies like The Quick and the Dead, the Sam Raimi film with Sharon Stone. But without something like this, you would have never had a movie like that. You would have never had any point of a, a female lead character that drove things, and she isn't even really the female lead. There is no lead. There isn't anything that drives anything aside from the mystery and, and the overwhelming urge to know what the fuck they're doing, which you never get relieved of. All you're given at the end of the movie is a faint idea, and then if you sit and you think about it longer and longer, that faint idea, it could be so many perplexing different situations, and I'd love to go over them, I'd love to sit and say, well, I think this and I think that, but what's it going to get? Where, where's that going to get us? I don't want to overemphasize my idea, I don't want to give you this picture painted by me because it's, it's the experience to see in this movie and I'll, this can be said I think for almost every Monty almost it, it can be said for every Monty Hellman movie now, of course at the end of his career the guy returned to horror he did Silent Night Deadly Night 3 better watch out he also did Iguana 1988 the year before that but you get something like Tulane Blacktop you've got something like this China 9 Liberty 37 Monty Hellman was an existentialist, I guess you could say, and this movie is... I made that Albert Camus joke earlier. You you can take a lot, and not from him, though. That was a, a poor and a joking reference. You can take a lot from somebody like Samuel Beckett, to the extent that one of the first things that Monty Hellman did when he was out in California is he, he might have been actually the first stage performance of Waiting for Godot. The nature of his work raises more questions than there will ever be answers, but the nature of his work is the nature of life, to where there are always constant more questions than there are ever going to be answers. Any day you wake up, at the end of the day, you're going to be wandering and pondering things much more than when you woke up, because each step of existence is learning. Even if you're not learning, you're experiencing, which is learning. Though not written, this may really be, I, I think, the purest definition of... Monty Hellman's work, of of the message of his work, rather. And I think, personally, that it's the message of questioning, questioning everything, questioning reality, never stop doing so, and, and when the movie ends, keep questioning it. Never stop. I hope you see this movie. I hope out of every movie that has been discussed on Death by DVD, there are over 900 episodes at this point, from the original run of the show to this current run right now. 
I hope out of all of the films that we have discussed that this is this is the one you see. And if you're a filmmaker listening to this show, I, I really, I, that double fucking dog mean that. I really want you to see this movie. I don't care if you hate westerns. Watch this movie. Look at the subtext. Look at the text that's in front of you. Look at all of it. Look at the atmosphere, look at the environment, look at the soundtrack, or the lack thereof. The dialogue, the, the naturality between these people, and, and the unnatural nature of it. I was speaking at the beginning of the show about the, the dialogue and how it's unlike you'd heard in Western films before, and it's still... It's unlike you've heard in movies, everything is... It, it, it feels recited, but it feels natural. It, seemed, it seems forced, but it seems strange. But when you encounter somebody you've never met for the first time, can't you say the same thing is true? That it all seems just so bizarre and unbelievable, stranger than fiction, nuanced? You can look back on the memories and see them just like they're scenes playing out in your head. It's just... It's magic. It really is magic. I, I, that's a great way to, to come up with an ending for this episode. Monty Hellman was a magician. He could make things appear and disappear right there on screen. He could show you everything and take it away and leave mystique and shrouds of smoke that you questioned and have no idea. And every idea. It's all in your head. It's all a sleight of hand. Conceptually, when you're watching a film, you're following a story, you're following an idea. And with the shooting, all of that is present. All of it's there, but the idea is all up to you. The motivation, it's all assumption. It's all yours. That may be what drives this so wonderfully, is it really comes up to your creativity. It really comes up to your emotions or how stunted they may be. What can you feel? What can't you feel? What makes you feel? What hurts you? And then you get to the end of the movie and you question all that all over again. I feel you've got this directive of hating the woman. She's not even given a name, it's just this idea, the woman. And the conclusion of this movie turns all your concepts around, it turns everything upside down. And I think the intentional aspect of that isn't just for the concept of the movie, but the concept of people in general and your preconceived notions of them. A woman, a man, and so on and so forth. People themselves, uh, we think we're communicative. We think that we show expressions on our face or we're wearing clothes that can let people know something about us, but truly what we do is secret. What everyone does is secret. Your intents, your nature, your thoughts, your motivation, it, it truly is all just in your head. Darby Crash said it the best, but what we do is secret. Thank you for listening. I am Hank the World's Greatest. Watch more Monty Hellman movies. The ashtray is full, and the bottle is empty. You'll hear from me next week. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning.